From VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship, this is Episode 7 of Circle of Willis, where I chat with neuroscientist and neurologist Marco Iacoboni about his experiences being at the center of the emerging science of what Marco calls mirroring. Marco's work helps us understand how we empathize with others and may even yield some clues about what constitutes the self. Hey everyone, it's Jim Cohn. This is my podcast, Circle of Willis. Thanks for thanks for being here. The end of a, a busy semester. I'm I'm not I'm not sorry to see it go. I love everybody that I worked with, all the students. But but it's always a good time of year when you when you enter the holiday, the holiday part. The holiday part is here, and I'm happy about it. Okay, look, in this episode, I'm chatting with Marco Iacoboni, who's one of my favorite people on the planet, and who, in my, uh, my own informal poll, has one of, the, one, one of science's most enjoyable names to say out loud. Try it out. Iacoboni. It's a good one. Marco's one of those. He's, uh, he's an MD, PhD. He's one of those guys, because he's, uh, he's a neurologist and a, a neuroscientist. Currently, Marco is a professor of psychiatry and biobehavioral sciences at the David Geffen School of Medicine at, uh, at UCLA, which is, of course, the University of California at Los Angeles, which is on fire as I record this. And I'm really, really sad about that. I love L.A. I'm one of those people that loves L.A., love California. I hope those fires get taken care of soon. And I'm thinking of, of all my friends out there who might be affected negatively by that. Now, Marco, at, at UCLA, Marco is also the director of the Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation Laboratory, which is a place within the Amundsen Lovelace Brain Mapping Center. Whew, it's a lot of places. UCLA is busy, lots going on there, and Marco, Marco's in the center of all of it. And he's been in the center of things for a long time. In the late 1990s and early aughts, Marco sort of became famous for his work on, on mirror neurons, as we talked about it at the time. These are the neurons in the brain that become active not only when you do something, like, I don't know, like, uh, like grab a tomato or something, uh, but also when you, when you see someone else doing that thing. The idea is that the, the sort of coupling between enacting a behavior, doing something, and observing that same behavior that coupling in the brain, that may be a large part of how we understand the experiences and even the intentions of others. And it might actually underlie how we empathize with others. Now, Marco would probably say he studies the mirroring system or the mirroring behavior of the brain more broadly, because unlike some scientists working in this area, he doesn't really study the activity of specific neurons themselves, but rather the behavior of millions of neurons activating simultaneously. And he does that using brain imaging technology, like PET imaging uh, or fMRI. Uh, and more recently, he's been studying not only how our brains mirror the behaviors of others, but also how we control that mirroring. 
how our brains work to sort of keep the mirroring we do uh, from sort of running amok and causing us to simulate just about everything we see. And uh, it turns out that control is pretty important too. We'll talk about that a little bit in our conversation. In the process of doing all this, of course, Marco has written volumes of, of important scientific papers, including a very famous one published in the journal Science back in 1999 or so, I think that was when it was, called Cortical Mechanisms of Human Imitation. And this paper is, is sort of part of the DNA of the scientific study of empathy and human social cognition these days. So that's good. But Marco has also written a fantastic and really highly readable, really relatable book uh, for the general public that I recommend strongly to anyone interested in the human mind generally and, uh, and anyone interested in, in human empathy more specifically. This book is called Mirroring People, The New Science of How We Connect with Others. And, uh, and as I said, it's excellent. I encourage you to go get it and read it. All right? There are there are a lot of things. There's just so many things I want to say about Marco. I like to I like to talk about people, and I want to talk more about Marco. But I'm kind of I'm conscious of the fact that that I'm uh, as I as I go on and on with these opening monologues and introductions, uh, it keeps you from the actual man himself. It keeps you from the conversation. So uh, I want to get through this. But I do want to say, look, I I met Marco I guess for the first time in the Netherlands. I think two or three years ago at a conference we were both attending and I and I instantly instantly liked him very much because he's he's funny and warm and friendly and uh, and up for discussing just about anything from from neuroscience to to culture to art and uh, and you know existential philosophy which by the way Marco and I seem to end up talking about nearly every time we get a chance to chat with each other I don't I don't really know what that what that's about but but in fact, <laughs> Mark, Marco often reminds me of this great picture. I posted this on, on my Twitter uh, page for Circle of Willis a couple days ago. This, this great picture I once saw of the existentialist Albert Camus in this, in this, in this really great suit, and he's, he's dancing while smoking a cigarette. And somehow that blend of, of existential awareness and, and dancing and smoking that that blend of thinking and recreating goes a long way towards summarizing Marco's personality for me. And so that's that's maybe an efficient way to describe what Marco is like in addition to his prodigious scientific output. All right, I could go on and on with stuff like this, but I, I really don't want to, want, want to keep you waiting any longer for the man himself. So so friends and acquaintances and uh, and and people who I have no idea who you are, here's my friend, Marco Iacoboni. I hope you have as much fun with him as I did. <laughs> so good to see you, man. Good to see you too. Yeah, it's here in D.C. That's, that's kind of neat. Yeah, right. last time we were in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, right. That was what, two years ago? Two years ago, yeah. two and a half. <laughs> Let me let me just start at the beginning. I want, I want to ask you. I, I've never really asked you the question of 
where you know what sort of what your story is you got you got educated in in italy undergrad yeah back in italy uh, i grew You're up from in rome. rome rome yeah jeez that's so incredibly romantic i know my life sucks <laughs> i wish i i wish i was from rome such a beautiful i'm from city. silver spring <laughs> I, don't, I don't even <laughs> you know don't what know. it is of course you don't it's a suburb <laughs> okay of dc oh. <laughs> You're from Rome. That's awesome. That's such what a part of Rome? Were you were like born in the Trevi Fountain or something? <laughs> like a, yeah, found yeah, yeah. like a newborn. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you're you're from Rome. I'm from Rome. That's your hometown. My hometown. I was there like a week ago, and it's a beautiful city still. I yeah. love it. Wow. Rome by night blows my mind. Oh it's my so god! Beautiful. I still have never been. Oh, you should go. I, I know I should go. <laughs> Now <laughs> you should go now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Before I die, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, hopefully you're not gonna die anytime soon. But <laughs> why do you bring this out of me? All right. So, so you're from Rome, and you went to you went to school in Rome. I went to school in Rome. I went to medical school over there. Uh-huh. Um, then, on my first class of neurophysiology, I fell in love with the brain. I wanted wow. to study the brain. And in Italy, we don't have an MB, MD, PhD program combined. So, uh-huh. um, okay. and I was also a specialist in neurology, but I felt I needed to have uh, a stronger formal teaching in neuroscience. I and see. so I got a PhD in neuroscience too while I was there in Rome. Just along the way? Along the way. While I was, right. you know, I was seeing patients and as a neurologist. And, and did, did, you, did, you, did you have kids or anything like that at the time? Not at that time. Nothing no, at that time. No, that's, uh, that takes... So, I mean, so you had some more time on your on exactly. available to you to get a PhD and an MD <laughs> in neurophysiology, <laughs> neuroscience, in neurology. Neuroscience. Yeah. While I was seeing Come patients on. still. <laughs> And that's actually what led me to, to come here because it's part of my neuroscience PhD. I wanted to also get an experience abroad in a different lab. Um, I got a little fellowship from an Italian funding agency uh-huh. uh, to go to work with, first with Ranzaidel. He's a oh, psychologist yeah. okay. that studied with Roger Sperry, wow, with the two hemispheres, the left brain. Yeah. Exactly. And he's a lovely guy. I still uh, love him and we've done work together. Oh, that's terrific. And where was that? Exactly? That was in 1992. That was in 1992, but where? Where was, where was that at? Still okay. UCLA. I mean, still I just, UCLA. Okay. I wanted to do that and I knew that on campus there was this other guy, John Maziota, who was one of the godfathers uh-huh. of brain imaging. Uh-huh. And I wanted to do that too. So I started yeah. with the Ranzadel and then I contacted Maziota. And I started working with them in '92, '92, '93. How about that? I so, did a, you did you like LA right away? No, initially I was a little shocked. I what mean, were you shocked by? It's so spread out. It's yeah. so different from. I mean, the layout. That's I right. Mean, you can't really. It's not a walking city. No. so much. Well, although now I walk from my house to my office every day, so yeah. it becomes. I know. Rub walking. it in. <laughs> Actually, I do too. <laughs> I, I do through the sleet and rain. <laughs> and I feel for you. My empathy is yeah, for you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, mirroring. So were you, what was the state of your science at that time? Oh, at that time, I was just at the beginning. I was just uh, figuring out what I wanted to do. One thing that really interested me from the very beginning as an observing neurologist and as a resident in neurology, I was seeing a lot of patients with stroke uh-huh. in the early hours after the stroke. In oh, fact, wow. our group back in the 80s was the first group that studied within six hours stroke patients doing angiography, doing CT. In those wow. days, we didn't have, we didn't have MRI. Um, right, right. to figure out you know, how to treat the patients very, very soon, which is a concept that is still valid now. Yeah, that's right. So, wow. So, so you started making your mark? 
really yeah. doing that. And by seeing the, the deficits of these patients, I realized that a big thing in the brain is really how the brain puts together perception and action. Uh-huh. And that, that started the whole thing. And so I started looking into that and wanted to study that. Uh, um, I was already in LA when I ran into Rizzolatti in 95 in a wow. meeting in Prague. And they had just made the discovery of mirror cells. So, so yeah, that was really, really brand new. Yeah, the major Rizzolatti, paper. And he's, he's such an interesting guy. Too. He's, a, he's a lovely guy. Yeah, great he's, guy. It's like, you know, the Einstein. Hilarious. <laughs> and and the, he's just, I don't know, I'm going to say something just deeply offensive now, but he's just so Italian. He's very Italian. Is that, is that offensive? Very, That's no, not offensive. it's not offensive. It's so true. <laughs> he's also, yeah, a little, I mean, the way he drives, you should see the way he drives. <laughs> he's so aggressive. It's like. <laughs> so, you, so you meet him in Prague. I meet him in Prague. He tells me about this stuff. I find it interesting. He wants to do some brain imaging on the side. And uh-huh. uh, I was already at the... Because he's doing single cell stuff. He was doing single yeah. cell. Now he's doing all, everything. I mean, on, uh-huh. now he's kind of almost retired, but... Because of his fame, he's collaborating with all sorts of people doing all sorts of things. Right, right. But at that time, they wanted to really to expand and do also brain imaging in humans. Um, yeah. And that's the way he started. So he's, <clears throat> l- l- just to orient people who might be listening, Rizzolatte and... Uh, Galese. G- Galese and, and some others, they, they start observing that, I, it was in, in, in primates, in monkeys, Yeah, yeah. Uh, when, when some are... are doing an action right. you get activity in these these bundles of cells right in the cortex and when then they're observing the same action taken by another monkey those same cells activate and that, right. this was an enormous uh, news flash i remember i remember everybody i was in graduate school at the time and and everybody just was shitting their pants because because this now we had we had a a neural substrate a real mechanism for uh, at least at the time we thought for empathy and understanding of intention and, and observational you know, observa- learning, yeah, observational learning, all that stuff, modeling, right? But it wasn't. I mean, it, now you, we tell the story like you know, they see the phenomenon. I mean, they did. They didn't look for it, but they found it and right. they realized. Right. But the the idea that some motor cells, cells that control your muscles, yeah, can respond to the side of someone else making the same action it was so outrageous at that time. Yeah. That it took them a long time to convince themselves that really? they were not seeing an artifact. Well, that's that's appropriate, I guess, if it's a pretty... Because spe- I remember when we st- first started talking about it, I was at the University of Arizona, and there was a center there for consciousness studies, and there right. was lots of, you know, how do we know another mind? You know, all these kinds of questions were going on. And David Chalmers was there, and yeah. Al Kasniak. And so, yeah, this 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 hit like an explosion. Of course, there. yeah. And Galese became famous going to that conference. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he told the me consciousness the consciousness conference. Yeah, he said that he told me the whole story. I mean, he, he submitted <laughs> an. A, 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 I must have been there. <laughs> ninety-eight it was ninety-eight. Oh when yeah, I was. Definitely and that's when there. he also met at that, that conference. He met Alvin Goldman, and they started oh, working yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. They had that paper in Ticks uh, uh-huh. on uh, mind reading and mind reading. reading. But it, the story was that he wasn't even going there. Because Why? they wanted him to present a poster. And he said, I'm not going to go to Arizona. I'm not printing to- <laughs> a poster. <laughs> but apparently someone withdrew that was supposed to talk. And they gave him the, uh, an oral presentation. They, they flew him out. And then all of a sudden, everybody gets on fire with mirror neurons. Yeah, they sure did. Wow, that's so interesting. I didn't realize. I mean, I guess. I mean, I don't know if I really remember this or not. But now that you're telling it, it seems like I do. But I remember that jolt. 
in graduate school because I was yeah. right there. I was yeah. in I was in Tucson for that that conference and, and it, with all those people that were organizing all that stuff. And also Ramachandra helped a lot because he's, he started making a big deal about me. Yeah, that's so. right. And John Cassiopo, I remember, was very very excited about that and was talking a lot, at least talking about it everywhere. Yeah, I mean, for about ten years, the media was in love with mirror neurons. Yeah, and we've we've had some backlash, haven't we? Yeah, we can get we can talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but first, first, I want to uh, when when you're talking with Rizalati about uh, the the mirror neuron phenomenon, you're discussing the possibility of doing this as a brain imaging. That's right. Study. Well, the problem that we had is, of course, with brain imaging, you can't look at individual firing pattern. Actually, you know that your signal is just the mix it's of a, hugely it's an indirect d- signal that right. comes from, uh, you it's know. It's blood flow. It's not even neural activity. <laughs> and in right? response of millions of cells. Yes, so right. So how do you do right. a study like that? Yeah, so, that seems complicated. <laughs> it, it was. So, Marco, <laughs> how do you do it? You're the man. So the way we do it, so first of all, let's think of the functionality of this system. What can it do? Yeah. And one thing it can do, if you have some areas of the brain that fight up when you make an action, when you see someone else making an action, those regions must be involved in imitation. Uh-huh. Imitation is such a big deal in human behavior. And yet, at the time, no one had done a single study using brain imaging to right. study imitation. Right. So I thought, well, first of all, let's do an imitation paradigm. Let's have some nice control conditions. Let's make some predictions. And hopefully, the predictions that we make when it comes to areas that should be mirroring, are also kind of anatomically compatible with the areas in which the like monkey motor be. cortex, right? Motor, yeah, motor areas with, more with some motor significance. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we, I mean. Those were you know sort of loose, but in a way was the best that we could do at that so time. So what was the what was the original study? What was the what, the did, you, what did you actually do? They were just our side. We were just imitating very silly finger movements, uh-huh. lifting so up. So you're lifting up and. But index. you know what? I love that. I actually give that example because it's a very simple study. It's, it's so simple. That's why you know the thing is about brain imaging. It's that if you have, if you get at all too complex right. in your contrast, then you've got multiple potential interpretations of any given contrast. And right? also, but the funny thing is that we're using this very simple stimuli, which is just a hand lifting a finger, and yet at that time. They were they were so little. Now we're doing all sorts of wild stuff. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Love <laughs> or showing movies. Right, and, right, right, right. But in those days, people were so much controlling what they were trying to do in sure. terms of activation that I yeah. remember a grad student of the Brain Mapping Center gets into the scanner. I mean, in the, the control room while I'm, I'm doing a subject uh-huh. and sees my little hand moving the fingers and he looks at it. Oh, that's a very interesting stimulus. Because <laughs> in those days you were doing like There's, stupid Because fashion. you can see the hand and the finger. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's appropriate. I mean, I think that was especially, you know, it was, it was even then still a pretty new technology. I mean, you were really at the ground level, yeah. you know, with, with, with fMRI. And the funny and story. You had done PET had done stuff pet. before I'd, that. I'd done PET, and that was my the, the the paper we published in Science on imitation of this little finger movements was actually my very first fMRI study. Is that right? <laughs> oh man! And it was so smooth. I mean, in well, my you mind, know, it was great. That was great, great work, dynamite work. I mean, that I mean, that's like that's like a piece of DNA that has spawned. Thousands of other studies. And I'm other glad you say that. I still it's have really that paper. It's really true. I mean, sometimes you read the paper that you've written years ago, and you say, "Well, I would change this. I would change that." That sure. paper, I wouldn't change a word. It's oh, perfect. It's just man. perfect. That's great. <laughs> well, it's a beautiful paper, and I think you should feel really proud of it. I am still Good. my most cited paper too. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. 
So, so what happens? So, you, so you, you, you do this study, you send it to science. I do the study in March. In I March. analyze the, the data in May. <laughs> I give a seminar, a local seminar, because oh my God. I wanted to figure out my own data. In December, I write the paper, and in December, it's published in science. Every now and then, I have this experience. It's almost like flow for scientists. Like you get the idea. You just know this idea is the right idea. Yeah, yeah. And you do the study and everything seems to fall into place beautifully. Like suddenly discovering you can dance or something. And I can tell you one thing. I mean, maybe I just uh, postdocs of a delusion that I have. But I remember <laughs> that I had this feeling. I mean, you never know when your paper gets published in any journal, but especially in a journal like Science. And yet, when I sent that paper, I thought... <laughs> I think this paper got a chance. I'm going to do it. Yeah, you know, I know what you're talking about. I've done, I published a lot of papers, as have you. And there are certain papers where I very distinctly remember feeling like, oh yeah, this is the, this is the one. This is going to be... This is a good one. This is going to be a really good one. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't know exactly why it happens with some papers and not with others. I have been surprised in the past, but not that often. I sort of know exactly. which papers are the good ones. Exactly. <laughs> Well, to me, it happened at least a couple of other times. Uh -huh. One was that uh, after we, we started this work on imitation, someone sent me a paper by Chartrand and John Barge uh -huh. showing that people that tend to imitate automatically other people, they also tend to be empathic, more empathic. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, I started yeah. really to link you know, Im sense. imitation and empathy. Uh-huh. So we did this study that we published in PNAS with a lot of also media coverage right, in right. which subjects are imitating or watching facial expression and we showed this circuitry between mirror areas, the insula, the amygdala. Yeah, yeah. And I remember the New York Times covered it uh, using one of the famous phrases of Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> right, because you're implicating insula. So that was the, the other one that when I sent it to PNAS I thought this has a good chance of getting there. And then the one on intention, the one and in when, when, when was the P PNAS paper? It was published. It's always hard to say PNAS. I know. I don't. I keep. I keep feeling compelled to say penis. <laughs> and I, 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 and that was I in two thousand three, four years after the science paper. Two thousand three. Okay. And then two years also later. still pretty early. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, we had we had a ten year run in which everything we were doing was like gold. Yeah. Nature right. neuroscience. Right. Uh, you know, some people complain about that. But I don't, I don't. I think it's appropriate. Compare about what? About the, you know, the sort of all the MRI studies in the late 90s, early, early aughts that were going into these high-powered journals um, because, you know, were they really that good, blah, blah, blah. Look, this was a new method yeah. that was giving us unprecedented access to the in vivo functioning brain. And I we mean, almost anything right. would have been science-worthy. I agree. The fact that you were doing that work at that time at was that particularly time was profound. Yeah, I agree. And also, for the first time, we were showing that neuroscience can actually do stuff that is relevant to the lives of yeah, ordinary people. Sure, <laughs> right. Which you know, who knew that was that could be true. So that was good. That was a nice ten-year run that led me to actually write a whole book about this story because yeah. it was a nice science story. Well, it was telling me that I'd been told for many years that we are selfish beings, and actually, what I was seeing with my studies that humans are actually wired for empathy. We're actually they're good wired people. for empathy. We can't almost can't help it. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. and then we learn how to be unempathic. I think that's my my. My theory at this point that when we grow up, we actually use all our cognitive. We control. grow wiser, and Wise, more discerning, more controlled, more controlled. <laughs> yes. So, so last time we we were tracking you in 
in terms of where you are, mm -hmm. was 92. You're there on a postdoc. Right. And then you meet, uh, you know, Rizzolatti and, you, and all this stuff, stuff. But when do you start your job? Your actual faculty yeah, position, yeah, yeah. position at UCLA. Well, for many years, I was a bit ambivalent. I really still love Rome, and I wanted to go back to Rome. Yeah. But I was living in this incredible city, but also I was also in this incredible lab. And uh, so I was looking, you know, here and there, and uh, I didn't get really a nice offer until, of course, you know, you're an academic too. Until yeah. the Italians make me a good offer. And I'm telling oh, John right. Mazziotta. Right, you have to oh. have the competing offer. Yeah. I God tell John Mazziotta, I'm going to go. And yeah, he says, no yeah. way, no. you stay. <laughs> yeah, we'll let you work in the mines until you have another offer. And then we'll, then we'll think about it. Yeah. So that's the way it works. I mean, basically, I started with my official position as a professor in 99. Yeah. So you were doing all this amazing stuff all the way through there. Actually, the, the paper also came out. The science paper came out in '99, so everything was actually falling in, in uh, the yeah, right that's place nice. at the, yeah. the right time. Well, man, I tell you, UCLA is such an incredible department, yeah. and the resources there are amazing. The city you got the Pacific Ocean right there. It's a sweet deal. Yeah, and Sir, the Brain Mapping Center is also fun. The Brain Mapping Center. So tell me about the Brain Mapping Center. It's a small building, but uh, everything. I mean, my office is there. I get out of the office, and I have like. 30 years from it, my TMS lab. 50 oh. years from it, the, the, the Prisma scanner with HCP sequences. Oh, man, I want to come and visit sometime. <laughs> you should come and yeah, visit. Yeah, I really I would love to do that. I can invite you. I have to invite you to there be you a go. seminar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the brain imaging lab, was that there when you started? It was sort of there. I mean, there was, was a division. It wasn't really a center, though, no, the way not it is then. now. Uh, we opened the center officially in 1998. Uh-huh. Uh, and, but for a few years, we had a scanner, a 3T scanner. was a GE scanner at that time. Oh, yeah. Was I worked with the GE originally. And there was nothing. I mean, basically, it was just the scanner. Yeah. And then we built the building around <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, just shielding around the scanner. Exactly. And a little tarp for keep the rain off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was doing a little bit of PET in those years. But then uh, when we got the scanner, I started doing fMRI. But my real first fMRI time, is better. I know, definitely, it's, it's there's just, no doubt. It's totally, it's yeah. way easier. It's better, it's easier on subjects. You get so many more data points. Yeah, though. you get far <laughs> more data, yeah. I love it. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's problems with it, but. Sure, sure. Still. But we can overcome those because we're, we're so, so clever. And what I'm doing now is also to use <laughs> a lot of neuromodulation techniques, like a TMS. Right, or, yeah, and I want to talk to you about that. But first, I want to talk to you about the, the, the book. Mirroring people, and so everybody by mirroring people. Um, so, so where does the the, the idea for the, the the well? First of all, actually, I want to even back up a little bit from that because mm -hmm. when I think about the years that you're starting to publish these papers, and I and I am aware of them. I'm I'm studying neurophys and clinical psych at Arizona with all the consciousness crowd and my uh, mentor John Allen and. The mirror neurons phenomenon just explodes and everybody's obsessed with them. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly there starts to be this like... Backlash. What is this really? <laughs> right? What is this really? But before we even get to the backlash, what I want to hear about is what is your experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of wonder about people like you mm -hmm. in the sense that you were internationally at the center of this explosive moment. The biggest moment. story in neuroscience. The yeah. biggest story in neuroscience. What was that like for you? It was good. Yeah. Really good. <laughs> You're not very neurotic, are you? <laughs> not at all. <laughs> oh, that's a great gift. You should thank your mother. Call your mother and say, thank you for not making me neurotic. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, uh, my mother is... Uh, 
in a classical Italian manner, so it can be also a pain in the ass. But <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, fair enough. But so, so you were just you. Were, it was really a nice time. It was a nice time. It was fun. I mean, sometimes you have a little, even too many requests for media. Yeah, uh, sure. And sometimes sure. you would, you know, say things that well, I wouldn't necessarily write that. But um, what scientists don't understand is that if I'm a politician and a reporter covers what I'm doing, yeah, you don't want the politician to cross check what the reporter says. That's right. right. That's right. With science, it's the same thing. I mean, the, I, after all, the journalist is free to write whatever. They right, want to right, write. right, 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 right. But. But scientists don't get it, and if the, the the article in the media is not as precise or analyst what we write in scientific papers, then they attribute to you. Yeah, they say you the sci- become, you messed it up. Yeah, exactly, which yeah. is ridiculous. Of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> There's this new Alan Alda uh-huh. has this new the actor has mm-hmm. this new center. I at met him. Stony Brook. Did you? Did, yeah. Oh yeah, he probably for for Frontiers and uh, for one of the PBS one of the shows. one of the PBS shows that he that he did. He's got a new center designed to teach uh, scientists mm-hmm. r- to talk to the public. Yeah, and w- it's badly needed because it's a lot of scientists desperately don't. needed. I mean, it's you know pe- we don't know how to do it. Yeah, and you know you and I were just talking about this earlier when we were buying our bourbons. Exactly. Uh, uh, <laughs> that that uh, you know we we sort of had to learn it. By hook or crook, you know, as we go along, people right. watching people in the audience fall asleep totally. or not. You know, I, I learned how to do it, you know, while I was getting interviewed. Yes, that's and right. And I realized that it was really not transmitting well this concept, and I get better and better and better. The more you do it, the better you do it. Yeah, the more you do it, the better you get at it. I mean, if you're paying attention right, to the right. feedback, if you care about it, if you care about it, and I think you should, yeah. because I think part of the problem. I mean, people have said that. You know, there's lots of, you know, social media complaining about the way that scientists sell their work to, to journalists. Well, come on. The, the thing is, either y- your work never leaves the ivory tower because you, you're just too timid or too pure to talk to the media or the media who are not scientists. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes they are. And, and a lot of a lot of there's a lot of excellent there's a lot journalism of good, out there. Good science writers. Good science writers. I Ed Young. I love Ed Young. Yeah. But a lot of journalists will take what you're telling them and mess it up. Yeah. And and you can't really fault your, them because they're not they're not scientists. But it's also your I mean there's different kinds of uh, media coverages of science work. Some uh, it's done with such a time pressure that you can't even complain if things get messed up. That's right. But the you know the more yeah. thoughtful pieces you have time to actually talk to the science writer yep. and I think that if the article doesn't reflect the, the concept of the science it's really your fault because you're not able to communicate it well well that's that's exactly so that's what I was leading to is that if scientists aren't trained to communicate right in a way that preserves the core of the science itself and can be accessible to people who don't have a PhD in neuroscience right. yeah. Then, th- if we if we can't figure out how to do that, then these mistakes are going to keep going on and on and on and on and, and on. You know what I'm telling you is that when I wrote the book, I realized one thing. Okay, this is a book for giant readers, not for scientists. And I realized. Did you decide that early? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the idea. I mean, after all, my, my science was well published in yes, scientific right, journals. Right, right, so right, I was right. ready to write for for, for giant readers. In writing the book, I realized if I really understand a phenomenon, I should be able to explain it to pretty much everyone. But Oftentimes, we 
you know, we use our jargon and what's called the purity of science just to cover up the fact that we don't understand what you're talking about. Right. Hey, that's a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that. The jargon, because, you know, the, 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 the commonest explanation for jargon is our need for precision. Right. But it's <laughs> But not. you're saying something it, the opposite. It's a code word that, that uh, means can mean different things for different people. How fascinating. What an incredibly interesting point. I mean, I after all, really we're, we're, we're after mechanisms, right? So yeah. mechanisms can be explained in simple words if you really understand it shit <laughs> that's a totally different take on it i like that very much that's i'm going to think about that a lot but that's that also means that talking to the media is important for your own mental processes for the clarity of your mind on what you're doing the concept you're your your you know your the kind of phenomena you're studying and how you explain them to yourself and it's almost a test of whether or not you understand what you're talking about that's a really interesting construal of, of this whole process. So, so you talk a, a, a little bit about not only the science, but the p- sort of personal process of, of doing right. that science yeah, in, yeah. in the book. Was that, a, was that sort of more autobiographical element part of explaining it, part of bringing, drawing people in? I think so. I mean, after all, science is made by human beings. I mean, this yeah. whole idea that science is you know, the view from nowhere, uh, this objective kind of activity, it's bullshit. It's, it's, <laughs> we are, you know, we're human beings and we have our biases and also it makes it more um, relatable. I mean, if I'm not a scientist, realizing that after all, the science process is made by real people with their own, you know, upbringing, different cultures, different ways of thinking, personalities, it makes it more relatable to the reader. So the reader enjoys it more. It's more like, you know, a story, an adventure. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, and I think this partly comes out of like fiction and stuff, you know, the depiction of the scientist as this, you know, you know sort of mildly crazy, socially awkward, lab you know, coat. lab coat, you know, you know, you know, there there is some of that. Yeah. I remember. I'll never forget seeing my chemistry professor in the grocery store in in, in undergraduate school, walking around. And he was he was holding a melon, and like, he looked like he was inspecting it for <laughs> ripeness or something. And his safety goggles were still up on his head. You know, so there's there's an element of that. <laughs> it's kind of hard to deny. But in in actual fact, the diversity of types of people in science is exactly a reflection of any other domain that I've and ever seen. And it's part of the story. I mean, it's yeah. to understand the whole scientific process. You have to yeah. understand the people and make it. That's right. Because science is made by human beings. That's right. That's, absolute, that, that's absolutely right. And this is one of the reasons that I want to do these, these recordings because I think that even reading a newsprint article, you don't get access to the person very well. Exactly. Yeah. But that's why we also travel, right? Why would we yeah. visit other labs? Because reading the paper is one thing, like going to the lab. I mean, you today you, you gave a wonderful talk and you mentioned Graziano. And I was I read his papers, but until I went to his lab, I really didn't understand. So, I mean, I knew what he was talking about. Yeah. But seeing the videos of oh, these monkeys, yeah, I would love to it was do that. mind-blowing. So, so, so you made a decision writing this book to include personal stories, personal anecdotes, uh, you know, your, your feelings about things. Then also celebrating my students because after yeah, all, that's one thing right. we have to remember. I mean, they do most of the work. So yep. for mo- almost every chapter. After a certain point, that's absolutely true. And actually, I'm kind of envious because I, that's still the best part of the whole scientific process, doing the study. Totally. My students, I was telling you earlier, my students run circles around me now in terms of data and analysis with MRI data, you know, I, I, th- th- just the advances, they're, they're 
taking and I know that someday they're going to experience what I'm experiencing you know their, their students are going to lap them it's just sort of how it goes yeah, yeah right yeah. but this last year um I had had an incredible experience it's like it's like it's like going home f- to relive your youth for a minute you know for for a week my EEG system just went belly up uh-huh. and I had to fix it and, and I did, and I went, and I did myself. Oh, I went in there, I worked on stuff, I put it all back together, I took it apart, I sent some of it out for to be repaired, and oh man, it must have been also been a very awesome. good feeling. <laughs> it was such a great feel. I mean, there was there was stress about it because I wasn't doing all this other stuff that I do now. I put that on hold for a little while, but I sort of gave myself a couple of months to just work on my stuff in the and, lab. And you know that's you know, awesome. You know, you know the flow stuff and yeah, the, the why flow why stuff, it's so right. rewarding because you have an immediate feedback. I mean, yeah. you do, you fix your EEG system yeah, and yeah. you see that you fix it right away. Right. Right, you can see it's you did like the thing, and a, now it's doing the it's stuff. Not having a, an idea of a paper and sending the paper out four years later <laughs> and getting a review back <laughs> ten months later—it's <laughs> such a delayed gratification I process. Know, I know. You I really know. must love doing the science to actually because the, the gratification. Do you remember doing your dissertation? I do, I do. I oh. loved it actually. Did you? I mean, at that time, I was even more. You know, I was very idealistic. I thought I was the luckiest guy on earth. I was doing this beautiful thing. Remember. Uh, years before, I was treating patients, which I loved. I loved also that the human right. relations, but uh, I loved the science a little more. And I thought this is so great because you know when you see patients, it's also a grinding kind of activity. Yeah, yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, you really love immediate feedback and things like that. You really but uh, so I was really, I felt it was it was great to to be able to just sit down and write a dissertation about the experiments you've done, you devised. And it is great. There's, I should never complain, but I, I do all the time. <laughs> so I felt really good about it. And uh, yeah, I didn't have any, any complaining <laughs> or you know nightmares about my dissertation. Yeah, good. <laughs> so you, you rewrote your book, you sent it in. How did it go? Well, actually, I was almost kind of forced to write the book because, I mean, the, the media was following my research all the time. And at some point, yeah. John Brockman sent me an email in which he says, the title of the email is Your Next Book. Wow. And he explains his whole f- agency. Of course, I already knew him. I mean, knew he was the the biggest agent yeah. for, for scientists, the, the super and, agent. And then John I thought, then, then maybe I really have to write this book because I knew that writing a book it's a lot of time, it's a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, and, uh, and it's a of, really different kind of work. It's a very different kind it's of work. Not, it's not. And it's writing a an lot article. of work. And oh, jeez. And I'm kind of a lazy guy. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> So, but you, you know, when Brockman sends you an email like that, you want to meet the guy. I met the guy. I thought yeah. he was a riot. He's in LA? He was in LA. I mean, he's in based in New York, but, you know, oh, he travels okay. a lot. And yeah. at some point, he's visiting LA. He's in LA, and we have lunch together. I find nice. the guy very charming and uh, fun. So, and, and then he says, well, then write this book proposal. And I say, okay, I'll think about it. I was really still convinced about it, uh-huh. um, but then it's Christmas time, and you know, there's you know things slow down. A little extra I'm time. A little extra time. I'm always the, f- the first one to wake up in the house. And in <laughs> two mornings, just one hour each morning before breakfast, I write my proposal and I send it in. I go skiing. I'm in Colorado skiing, oh, and Brockman calls awesome. me, and he says, "We love your proposal." 
Wow. So we're going to actually send it out, but um, we should send it out at the right time. And they say, well, you know, Sandra Blakesley is actually writing a huge spread on the New York Times about mirror neurons. Uh-huh. And so I told him, well, maybe you want to send it out around the time. Around that, that time. And he says, around that time, we send it out the same morning <laughs> that they paved that article it's like when they send out. A, it's like when they send a satellite out into space. <laughs> they, they try to round it past Jupiter to, to take advantage of the... The slingshot gravitational. That's what he does. I mean, yeah. the article comes out the same morning. It fires up, you know, my proposal to all the publishers in New York. And I got lucky because two publishers actually started bidding against each other. Wow. So I got a very nice beefy contract. And it's a, and I never written a book before. And wow. so after I signed the contract, you know what John Brockman tells me? What? Now I feel empathy for you. You have to write a book. Oh, oh geez. <laughs> now you got to write a book and it's better be good, man. <laughs> Don't mess that one up. <laughs> and it was a little unsettling. I mean, writing a book is a very different story than for, you know, for lay people than writing an article yeah. or a grant application. Uh-huh. But then I enjoyed the process too. I, I enjoyed it so much that I thought, I'm going to write another book very soon. And it's now 10 years later, I haven't <laughs> written a second book. And people keep, keep asking me, why not? Yeah, why, why, haven't why written? not? I'm and asking I, you right now. And I have the answer. The answer what? is I need to fall in love with the story. Uh, because, yeah. I mean, the story of, of million people, I really fell in love with it. Right. I really, in right. spite of all my being hesitant because I knew it was a lot of work, it was a different kind of work, I really, I, I thought it's an important story to write. And yeah. until I have that meaningful kind of uh, relationship with another story, there's no sense. You've got plenty of work to do. Oh, yeah. You've got lots of stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's a perfect sort of heuristic to use to decide to do something so, so large. Right. You know, I think it's great. It makes perfect sense to me. So how did you, how was the process of writing the book? Was it, was it, I mean, clearly it's different from writing a scientific article. Yeah, that was also the other thing that initially concerned me because books, you know, these are, they're, they're kind of broad kind of um, objects in a way, yeah. verbal objects. Uh, but then when I wrote the proposal, I realized, wait a minute, I know everything that I've been putting down in the proposal. I don't have to do research. I don't have to, you know you know, kind of stretch myself and talk right. about stuff I don't know. I really know everything. Every chapter, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's a so, beautiful feeling. That's flow. For me, it was. I mean, it was, you know, it's still, it, you have to do, you have to get better. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It was initially a little tough, but it was still. Well, I, and the other question I have, I mean, I know people, plenty of people like John Haidt is a friend of mine and the other people have written books. I know that the process of working with an editor can be yeah. challenging. Too. That's right. I was a little concerned about that too. Yeah. Uh, but then I realized I got lucky. I got this freelance guy that I had and he was a sports writer. Oh, wow. And cool. I thought if he gets it, it's probably perfect. But you never know. I mean, working with others, we have this idea that, you know, when you write, it's your own work. Yeah. And this, that can't be diluted or changed by other right. people. It's my art. It's my soul. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that's, and that's another thing we have to read. It, it's a delusion. I mean, the best work comes from collaboration. After all, I, I mean, think that's really true. It's your science and my science that, that right. actually tells us that. Yes, that that's cool. right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's all about collaboration. So why? <laughs> so I'm actually. My, but then my, there's artistic integrity, you see. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but my first draft, I just, I wrote it all. But then I realized that, you know, I really needed someone else that would make it. Uh, and he made very few changes, but the few changes he made, just shuff, shuffling things around yeah. and adding a few things here and it there. It makes sense. Perfect. It was just wow. perfect. 
and I didn't change really anything about the, su- the, the substance of the book. It made uh-huh. it just better. I, the idea that you, you write by yourself, it's just, uh, again, a romantic delusion of the yeah, centuries yeah. ago. And it's really good. I mean, so I, what I'm saying is that if you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking of writing a book, you've never written a book, don't be afraid of being edited. It's, yeah. a, it's actually a good experience. Well, okay, so... So you write the book that's out. You you are the mirror neuron guy, Mister Mirror Neuron, mirror, Mister Mirror Neuron for humans certainly. Yeah. I mean, you're 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 you know whenever anybody thinks that phrase, mirror neurons, we think we think uh, Marco Jacoboni. So, yeah, especially in the late. Uh, lay people right, the because lay, I, that's right. my science was covered a lot by the media and because my book is probably the most accessible accessible book on mirror neurons right, I think a that's lot right. of people outside the neuroscientists when they think about mirror neurons they think more about me than Rizzolatti which is kind of I feel bad about it but yeah <laughs> well it depends on whether you're I mean it's sort of like you know people that that, that know late versus early Rolling Stones you know, <laughs> it's like you're later Rolling Stones he's earlier Rolling Stones but, but the the um, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you to help me understand mm-hmm. is the backlash, mm-hmm. the back, the mirror neurons. I mean, there's a, there was a popular book just a couple of years ago out. Yeah. Uh, about the myth how, of mirror neurons or something. The myth of mirror neurons, right? <laughs> Everybody's passing it around social media because it's sort of like, uh, you know, it's sort of like the, the fashion now yeah, yeah. to disprove thing. Yeah, but actually there is nothing that that, that book actually disproved. Uh, first of all, it comes from a sim- very simple paper that the same author wrote for uh, John Kai in your sense, and uh, the book is just an expansion of that. Who's the, the author called. again? I can't remember. Uh, Greg Hickok. Oh, yeah, Hickok. Right, yeah, yeah. But the idea is that, I mean, worse, there's no meat. I mean, the f- mirror neurons are, it's a real phenomenon. It's demon- demonstrable. You but I guess the way that I've heard the controversy is is it that there are specific neurons that are for the purpose of mirroring or is it that it's a thing that neurons in the brain do is that a really a, a question that makes any sense at all we know that the brain well i mean in the sense that there might are, be other neurons that never mirror oh yeah i mean that's possible we don't know about that but certainly um, my idea is that mirror neurons bec- mirror neurons become mirror and they acquired the, 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 the property of being mirroring in the sense of responding to the same action that they could motorically. I see. Um, but it's probably... But, it's, but, is, but is mirroring just a, like a, pro, a thing that brains do? Or it's is a it process. A, things it's more that like brains have, as a, in, in, in like, like a Lego piece that is the mirror part. No, I think it's more like a process. I think that when I think about the brain, it's always like that. I don't think uh-huh. that you know, the brain, I mean, the, we know this amazing plasticity in the brain. We know, and when I went to med school, that was many years ago, I was told that you reach a certain age and you can only lose neurons. We know that that's not true <laughs> that's anymore. That's not true, right. In yeah. the adult brain, you can induce neurogenesis with, with stimulation, with other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, right. I mean, neurons are, are a plastic properties. They change their own responses and so actually that's the way I think about mirror neurons so say in ontogeny I'm the baby you're the caregiver the baby smiles the caregiver can't help smiles back at the baby and the baby's brain is very simple to make through associative learning a connection between making a smile and seeing someone else smile oh I see so mirror neurons are born right there (laughs) right but it's still it's still I I guess I guess in that sense the 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 designation of one set of neurons versus another one set of neurons is mirror neurons and the other is not mirror neurons might be because the mirror neurons are the ones that have been that have had that associative learning right they're not necessarily 
phylogenetically, you know, no, they're, they're in the right place at the right time for having that mirroring interaction. Right, but that's uh, that's a very simple. I mean, after all, mirror neurons are defined by the physiological properties they have. Think about the simple and complex cells of Hubel and Wiesel. They uh -huh. also they're just pyramidal neurons, and they have these these properties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. So, in that sense, how would it be possible? for you know mirror neurons to be mythical unless you're stuck thinking about them in that way that I've been describing like there is a kind of neuron that that only is yeah. a mirror neuron yeah i think hickok and others that were critical of mirror neurons were mostly critical of some of the interpretations about mirror neurons mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. the phenomenon is there i mean there's yeah. no doubt it. it's actually very compelling and it's very pervasive and actually i think it's very important because it really it's a way to show uh, how the brain assimilates the self and the other yeah right I always have a minor religious experience whenever you mention. <laughs> well, that's great. That's really illuminating. Uh, that that helps me a lot understand sort of the the issue because when I watch people in social media discussing mirror neurons and sort of having that you know fashionable sneer around uh, you know the use of mirror neurons or discussing mirror neurons, I think that what they're doing is they're reacting to a sort of cartoon caricature exactly. of what it is. I mean, than most people don't even know what the controversy is about, but because they know that there is a controversy, which is actually totally artificial, they think, well, no, this stuff is unclear. Yeah. But the stuff is completely reproducible in every lab. Okay, S moving on yeah. from the mirror neurons era. I mean, you're still obviously interested in mir mirroring yeah, and it's as actually, a process. And what we're doing now, it's the, the logical follow-up that is uh, if you have mirror neurons you need to have a control system because otherwise you'll be imitating it other people all the right. time. Right, so what's maybe differentiating you from, from the other. Right, and so what we're studying is the control of mirroring. But what we're doing is wow. that is to figure out how, you know, people often conceptualize mirroring and control as completely separate kind of processes. And what we're finding out is that in di indeed they're actually heavily intertwined. They're always interacting. And so to give you an example in the whole empathy and mind reading and social cognition kind of word people kind of differentiate between mirroring or emotional contagion sort of behavior which is a very fast sort of behavior a lot you know yeah. a la Kahneman, Kahneman yeah with you know mentalizing and mind reading which is a slow more flexible more deliberate kind of behavior and uh, again, people talk about these things also almost as they're completely independent. Uh -huh. And we're finding they're not. That is, even when you're doing, even when, when I see you falling from a bike and I have this immediate reaction, which is like emotional contagion kind of reaction, some of my mentalizing and mind reading processes are going on. And even when I'm doing tasks that on the face of it have nothing to do with mirroring, like uh, you know, sending money to Africa because I realize that uh, they need money <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I have some extra cash, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is, seems a very deliberate. That's very, very, very well, it was top down, right? Exactly. I mean, then even that kind of task probably relies on a lot on my previous sensory motor experiences that I had with other people and in which I was using a lot of mirror neurons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, I mean, some people I've heard talk about theory of mind, you know, the understanding another mind in a very sort of higher level cognitive model, starting with a sort of a, a, a seed of being able to do what other people do. Right. And that, 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 in, that informs the, the sort of, 
the cognitive schema, if you will, of, of how other people might might think or might be be feeling. But for a long time, people have con actually constructed this idea that there are two systems: a system for yeah, very system fast. system one and system two, exactly. right? Yeah, the Dan, Kahneman Dan stuff, yeah. But I don't think that that's the case. I mean, you these are. It's, I would translate system one and system two into bottom up and top down. So, what do you mean by bottom up and top down? Bottom up is like I see, I look at your face, and my perception immediately start triggering a lot of simulations inside my you brain. You just start sort of reacting. Right. And so that's yeah. the bottom up kind of thing. Yeah, okay. But then you need the top down in the sense you need to control all this stream of information because otherwise if that stream of information is not controlled, it's going to actually control your own behavior. Ah. And you still want to be in charge of your own behavior. Right, right, right. This is the big human innovation. This is cortex. Exactly. Right? That's, the, that's the cartoon anyway. This the classical cognitive control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so these two things rather than... And often people, when they talk about these things, they... I have the feeling they talk about these things in, in a very static way. And these are actually co continuously interacting processes. Uh -huh. And again, even when you're doing a task that on the face of it seems to actually activate only type 1 or yeah. only type 2, most likely you're seeing this, you're having top-down, bottom-up interactions all the time. So when we're interacting with someone, what you're, sort of what you're saying is that it, mirroring is happening all the time and control of mirroring is happening all the time so that we don't just start doing what everybody else Correct. is doing. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yeah, I've often wondered about that because, you know, if you think about the immune system, for example, the, the big task of the immune system is to know what particles in my bloodstream are me and what ones are not me. Right. Right. And so I, I always think about that when I think about I like mirroring and stuff like that because it seems like that is just sort of recapitulated higher up totally. in the central nervous system. And so we're, you and I are, and so many people are so interested and in, enchanted in, in by the idea of encoding the other as me. But of course, we can't do that all the time. We'd be crazy. Right, right. And yet, but the interesting thing is that if these top-down, bottom-up interactions are happening all the time, we often construe control as a deliberate kind of process. I'm controlling myself. Right. And, you know, I'm planning to do certain things. Uh -huh. That's the classical control mechanism, right? But what we're saying is that actually a lot of the control that is going on, it's implicit. It's not something that we have a deliberate plan to make it, but it's still happening. Well, that messes with the bottom-up, top-down distinction a little bit, doesn't it? No, it just it makes, I mean, it, it gives you a different perspective on what control is. I mean, yeah, think about... It's built in, it's baked in to the system. Yeah, it's almost, a, it's, it's a habit. I mean, think about, you know, a sporting activity. My favorite activity is, of course, tennis. Everybody knows that I'm yeah, a tennis player. Yeah, you play player. every day, right? <laughs> I play every God day in it. Southern California. You, you walk <laughs> to work in Southern California. You play tennis every day. It's a blissful life. <laughs> yeah. But the point is that when you, if you want to really improve your tennis game, you really have to practice a lot, right? Uh -huh. And that means you're going to be able to control your shots. Ah. But you do that in a very implicit way. You don't do it, I'm saying, oh, I'm going to hit the forehand this way rather than that way. Right. You just practice it in a certain way. And through of repetition, course, right. you improve your control. And do you see shifts in what controls that top-down process from one part of the brain to the other as it becomes more of a habit? We haven't seen it. I'm, I'm pretty sure those shifts happened, but yeah. uh, we're not, I mean, we haven't, I mean, those studies, as you know, are complex to do. They're very complex, but I'm <laughs> sort of obsessed with them. I want to see that it moves from like lateral PFC, you know, to medial, and, to medial yeah. and motor cortex and basal ganglia. Or yeah, that requires a lot of, the, you know, it, it's a complex kind of study, but that's something that eventually we will be doing too. Yeah. I but wonder about with that with things 
things like meditation and stuff too. Yeah, meditation know? certainly probably yeah. changes that. I'm pretty yeah. sure that meditation. Yeah. But what they were doing now with this story of control is to try to modulate it. I mean, we have okay. this nice tool called TMS oh. and figuring out which regions are doing control or mirroring, we can suppress the activity in those regions and we can see where can people... knock it out. Knock them out and see where they people become more empathic, more generous. And we have two nice results that show exactly that. That well, people are... We reduce group, group prejudice, you know, if, if well you known... Do a, you do a sort of out-group yeah, prejudice we do, we do an out-group manipulation. Yeah, exactly. So people are reading two essays of immigrants of the United States and one is in favor of the states and the other one is against the United States yeah. Yeah. and they, they get ranked uh, but we, when we suppressed medial prefrontal cortex why medial prefrontal cortex? well medial prefrontal cortex is a very interesting area for a number of reasons it's imp it's, we know it's important for current control uh -huh. um, we have some evidence from our brain imaging studies that indeed that region seems to be really important for controlling mirroring I see I and see. so that's why we, we so we, mirroring would make people more emp empathic exactly even if you're not observing someone even well, if you're not observing okay, something. Okay, right. So, so and, even and then, you, you sort of play a simulation. The way I'm thinking about it is that when you think about people, the, even when you think about people in a very abstract kind of way and in a very cursory kind of way, you can't help it, but you're going to rely on the sensory model representation Got that it. you had with your real-life interactions. So you're using transcranial magnetic stimulation to disrupt right. the activity of in, in this medial prefrontal area where Correct. there's a lot of mirroring going on while people control are... Control of mirroring. Well, we, control of mirroring. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Con control of mirroring is right. happening. And you're having people either read a sort of pro-immigrant or an anti-immigrant kind of... Uh, and we prime. show that we, can, we erase completely the group prejudice. Effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and the other thing we do is that... You, you erase it you, by erase removing it. control. By removing control, so increasing the mirroring. So one thing we know about empathy in humans is that empathy is strong within a social group, but it drops dramatically outside that social group. Yeah. So if I look at you as someone outside my social group, I have very little empathy for you. Yeah. But with, uh, and that, that's because of the control. We think. So that, so you know, the, 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 as we we've, we we talked about this too. The, the 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 ages old debate about whether we're sort of intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. One way you could phrase it: Do we intrinsically empathize, or do we intrinsically cast out people right, who are right. unfamiliar? This seems to suggest that we have to learn to con to control our yeah. intrinsic. Emp yeah. empathizing with people. My, my reasons we have to learn out groups. Exactly. I mean, my reasons that made me think that our default mode is to be empathic, and then we learn how to become unempathic, or at least for certain kinds of people. Oh, boy. <laughs> and why, no, why, why do you think... I mean, I, my, it sort of makes sense that people can be dangerous, right? So you have to learn to, to discern who to judge. But it's so fascinating that the machinery that we have in place is sort of the default machinery is understand and empathize and connect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, as you said, it's an old philosophical debate, right? Are you born as a good person that then <laughs> learns how to become a little selfish or right. are you born as a selfish individual 
that then learns how to be prosocial because you live in a society. Right. I now tend more for the former than the latter. I think that that's you know, the data we have suggested that's the case that we are we learn to become a little less sympathetic. Yeah, that I think that's probably true. And yet, we, you could also say that we definitely robustly have both capabilities. And so, the potential to control that sort of default setting mm-hmm. is in itself partly default. Right, it's partly what we we're, we're we're packaged with. Yeah, sort of. But you know, again, if you think of, from an ontogenetic standpoint, when you're really young, 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 you have a less control. So. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And kids, kids play readily with with people they don't understand. I mean, I, I see it in my own kids all the time. They go to the the party or the new. There's other kids there. There's yeah. a little moment of shyness, and then they're they're often exactly. dressing up like princesses or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's good stuff. And they imitate each other a lot. Imitation through bodily imitation, that's the way you connect with the other minds. So one of the things that I, I saw in, in your materials for this conference was, was a mention of sort of existential neuroscience. Right. Can you explain that a little bit to me? Yeah, I mean, it's almost a little... Uh, also, the, uh, the, the last chapter of the book talks about existential neuroscience. Yeah. The whole yeah. idea is that... Uh, when you look in your science, there is a lot of really clever people and beautiful work that is very, very abstract. Yeah. Um, and this abstract work, uh, it's important too, but I have the feeling that it tends uh, us to believe in a sort of a platonic brain. The fact that yeah. there is the essence the perfect, of the, the brain. The essential exactly. brain, right? And yeah. when you think about the essence of the brain, then I can't help it but think about... Uh, Sartre saying that existence precedes essence, and in fact, <laughs> Sartre just before throwing up, right? <laughs> just before he's throwing so, up, he's so nauseous from the lack of meaning. <laughs> but if you think about it, I mean, you've seen brains, right? You do yeah. new image, but oh, they're yeah. all different. Uh, um, there, there, there are similarities, but there is plenty of yes, differences. Yes, absolutely. And so, t- I even t- saw my own a few times. Exactly. It's, it's nice to know. <laughs> Me too. It's good to have reassurance. You know. It's, <laughs> And so it's important to look into individuality variation, trying to figure out how to actually study brains that are in which you take into account the individual features of the brain. Yeah. And especially when it comes to neuromodulation, especially when it comes to using TMS, which is oh, a technique yeah. in which you stimulate a region, but the effects of the stimulation spread through white matter tracks. So you really need wow. to know exactly what's the I wiring. didn't really realize that, but it makes sense. Of course, it would spread through white matter tracts. And they, I mean, they, and it doesn't stay there. I mean, clearly we have plenty of evidence that it goes at you know at circular level in terms of effects. And so you really need to know what's the underlying anatomy. And no one is doing that. So oh, that's shit. one aspect of it. <laughs> so it's just sort of you know about really taking an ideographic view of the brain that that everybody's brains is sufficiently different that it's harder to make big generalizations than, than we think. Right. And the other oh, story... that sucks. And the other part of the existential neuroscience story is that, you know, uh, my work made me think, I mean, we, we have this tendency to think about the brain as a computer, as a very abstract kind of machine. Yeah. But the brain deals with the stuff that is real, real life, that is bodies and... Uh, Perception, action, what we can do with the world. Exactly. Moving so, my body through space... And that's really pretty, pretty much as existentialist because, yeah. you know, it's that's really... That's right. That is existential. So these are the two reasons why yeah, I like to... Also, I like the existentialists. They're fun people. In yeah, existentialists are great. We were talking about uh, the difference between Sartre and Camus. <laughs> and I think we're both Camus fans. Yeah. Because Camus <laughs> liked to dance while smoking. 
Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's too. a great <laughs> metaphor for life. I think we should all do that because we're all going to die. Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> Alone. Al- <laughs> no, but that's the thing. I'm not sure that, yeah, that, yeah. that they were right. I mean, I think Sartre said a lot about, you know, he emphasized the dying alone. They were all sort of dramatically proclaiming the lack of meaning in the world, but I don't quite buy it. No, I don't buy that too. I mean, I think actually life and what you do, you create the meaning. You create the meaning. You manufacture the meaning. And it's very important for motivation. I mean, doing stuff that is not meaningful to you, it kills you. It just kills you. Whereas whenever you do stuff that is meaningful to you and to others, hopefully, then it's really something that you want to do. You don't have to have the extra motivation to do it. You yeah, really you're not you're not seeking your reward. Your reward is it's right, right now. right there. <laughs> right now. Well, dude, that sounds like a perfect description of the way that you're uh, you're you're living your life and you're doing your science and you're doing your work. That is I'm I'm pretty much mirroring my life in my own work. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you're mirroring your life in your own work. Yeah, you you're you're really seizing the day like the existentialist would have it. So you're perhaps the, the world's quintessential existential neuroscientist. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, man. This Thank is great. You. <laughs> okay. That's, that's it. That's a wrap. <laughs> I don't know why that, that made me laugh. I don't know why. That's kind of funny. That was like, it was like a cliche. I've never said that's a wrap before. All right. Thanks to Marco Iacoboni for chatting with me and clearing a few things up there. It's, uh, it's good to hear his views on mirroring and empathy and the brain's construction of the self and, and sort of how the brain differentiates the self from the other and, and you know, on and on. I could, I could go on and on with that stuff. And, and also really interesting to hear about his experience becoming a science superstar, which is something, you know... You know, the thing is, as, as enjoyable as Marco is in that recorded conversation, I still I still wish you could all just spend some actual time with him. Marco Iacoboni is just, he's just a really fun guy to spend time with. Truth is, I, I could have let the recorder go on and on that day, and, and maybe that's what I'll do next time I see him. I'll just sort of, sort of follow him around with a handheld recorder catching everything. Ah, that'd be fun. Anyway, thanks again, Marco for a fantastic conversation I owe you pal Uh, folks the music on Circle of Willis is written by Tom Stouffer and Gene Rooley and performed by their band The New Drakes for information on how to purchase their music check the about page at circleofwillispodcast.com don't forget also that Circle of Willis is brought to you by VQR and the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia and that Circle of Willis is a member of the TEJFM network. You can find more about that at teej.fm. Now, uh, if you like this podcast, how about giving us a little review at iTunes, letting us know how we're doing. It is actually easy. I say that every time, but I mean it. I swear to God, it is easy and we like it. Or you can send us an email by going to circleofwillispodcast.com and clicking on the contact tab just give us a little message there in any case i will see you all at episode eight where i'll be talking with psychologist and fellow podcaster samin vizier of the university of california at davis about the stability of personality and the various recommendations of the replication movement in science generally and psychology more specifically until then 
Bye-bye.